Well, we're living in some really crazy, uncertain times, and we're experiencing first in so many different ways. Like, this school year is a first for a lot of us, right? Uh, and lots of angst and worry and fear and concern, and confusion and chaos, uh, particularly for those who have uh, uh, children who should be going back to school, and the reality is they're not going back to school right now uh, for most of our students. And as a teacher... You know, your, all your education, your classroom management classes, they're kind of out the window right now as you're trying to navigate how to uh, love your students, teach your students, uncover value in your students on the other side of a computer screen miles away. And even for us right now, uh, every year right before school comes back, we kind of pile in all the, the, the students, the kids into the sanctuary, and we kind of pray a prayer of blessing over them and they're all here and we're all praying and teachers are standing and parents are feeling the confidence of knowing that the Lord goes with us and goes before us and even that is different now. Everything uh, seems to change. But here, here's what I know, right? Matt and Matthew it's one of the Gospels. Uh, one of the things that he tells us is that when people are gathered for the sake of unity, right? Um, for the sake of unity underneath God and his kingdom, right? When people are gathered in his name, when two or more are present in his name, Jesus actually tells us, there I am with you. So here's one of the crazy things that we're kind of experiencing right now. We're all scattered, and yet we're gathered. Because you and I, right, the second are um, two or more, right, are gathered and present in his name. Here's what that means. That means where you sit right now, if you're by yourself or with all your family, neighbors, whatever that is. Right now, Jesus is with you. And students, as you consider the school year, and teachers, as you consider the school year, that would be the thing that I just want you to understand fully. He is with you. He is with us. He has not forgotten us. He's not lost track of what he's doing, and he is bending and shaping all these things. Hear me, hear me. For your good, for your good, and simultaneously for his glory. So what we believe is that God has given us permission to participate in his kingdom, to make the invisible kingdom of God visible on this earth. And one of the ways that he has invited us into that participation is actually to pray. And Jesus says, whatever you ask in my name, I will do for you. And then he says, and you will do even greater things than I. Right? And so there's something about the power of his spirit indwelling us. And him responding to our prayers that we're asking his name. And so that's just what we're going to do. So, if you're a teacher, if you're a parent, if you're a student, if you're a grandparent, if you're just a neighbor, just going to take a moment and we're going to ask God to have his way. And so would you join me in prayer? Oh, Jesus. Think about the hundreds of students right now who are gathered with us while scattered. And God, I can imagine there's some angst and some uncertainty. And I think about all the teachers, God, who have devoted their life to service, Lord. And all the complications that have come with this new strategy for education. I think about all the administrators. Lord, the, the, all the responses and reactions that are happening from uh, disappointed folks from politicians, from students, and just, just so much. 
It's so complicated in this. God, it feels like chaos. It just feels like chaos. And yet, 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 you are not the author of chaos. You are the author of life. And Jesus, you very clearly tell us that you are the way, the truth, and life. Meaning the way by which we find life and truth and direction, Lord, is just found in you. Other places, God, you, you refer to yourself as the God of peace. And then, God, in the scriptures, you're talking about the way of peace. And so, Lord, that would just be my prayer for this school year, the 2020-2021 school year. And it seems crazy to ask it, but you are God who says, whatever you ask in my name, you will do. And so, God, I ask that this year would be a year of peace. The same peace, God, that you, you brought into the garden, that shalom. Peace, God, that this would be the year of peace. And Lord, it would be such a contrast from what's going on right now, God, with all sorts of unrest, political unrest, racial unrest, pain and sorrow and fear and worry. And so, God, right this second, right this second, God, I am, I am begging you in your name to just usher in peace. Usher in peace into every single home and every single heart that's here in this. God, even for those who aren't quite sure that you're real or loving or gracious, God, right the second, would you just bring in your peace? So God, would your the way of peace enter our homes and lives and church? And then God, as we don't get caught up in the current of our culture, God, would that peace be so evident in us? Not just so we can enjoy the peace and not see this just as a, a year to get through, but a year that we get to see and hear from you and walk with you and build our confidence and our life in you as the God of peace. And God, is, as that peace kind of transforms us, the way the scripture tells it, says is it, that passes all human comprehension. God, there'd be lots of reasons not to have peace right now, but would you just bring that peace? Would we then be people of peace, Lord? Wouldn't that be evident in our neighborhoods? That'd be evident in our students as they sit from across from their classmates in digital formats. And that'd just be so evident, God. So would you, you and only you can, God. Would you bring your peace into our heart and mind and soul? And God, for many of us who have never really clung to you, never really submitted ourselves fully to you, would this be the day that we, we tether ourselves to you? Whether you tell us, Matthew, God, that we should seek first your kingdom and your righteousness. May, may this be the beginning of us seeking first your kingdom and righteousness, God. May all this, may everything that's going on in our world point us to seek first your kingdom and your righteousness, God, when we tether ourselves to you. God, when we seek first your kingdom, when we seek first it. And Jesus, what you tell us, and all these other things, God, shall be added to, into us. All these other things, all chaos and concern and worry, God, all of that is added, resolved, Lord. That peace is brought just by placing ourselves in your kingdom and your righteousness. So God, we declare that our children and our students and our teachers, they belong to your kingdom. You are their God and you are their Lord. So God, that we declare that they're in your kingdom. They're in your kingdom, God. Would you, would you cover them would you protect them? Would you guide them? Would you clearly communicate your love for them? God, we're making a declaration that our children and our students 
belong to you. Our teachers belong to you and your kingdom. Right? They are part of your church, your bride, your family, and you said that you would build it. Those are the people you'd build your church, and the gates of hell could not overcome it. So God, we are declaring coverage in your kingdom. You are king and Lord. So we pray protection from the enemy. We declare your goodness and your righteousness. We declare, God, that you tell us that nothing can separate us from your love. God, we also declare that our, our battle is not against flesh and blood, right? We declare that there's an enemy, but we also declare that we serve and live under your covering in your kingdom. So God, would you help us seek first your, the kingdom of God and your righteousness. And God, do we trust that promise and that fulfillment that all these things shall be added unto us. And we pray these things in the only name that can do anything, Jesus. The only name that's worthy of our attention or affection or worship. Your name, Jesus. And we pray these things in that name. In that name alone. Amen. So thanks for uh, joining us today. Thanks for participating in prayer. And You know, that, that, that verse I just prayed in Matthew, where it says, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. That one verse gives us kind of a, um, kind of this understanding that there is a promise that God makes for us, right? And so what we've been kind of doing over the last six weeks, this is week seven, not going to cover much of the review, is going through this one of the biographies about Jesus' life, right? It's called the Gospel of Luke. And so Luke is 1,151 verses. Uh, 568 of those verses are direct quotations, citations of Jesus' words. And here's the reason we've done it. In Luke chapter 1, verse 4, he gives us his thesis. He says he writes all these things so that we may have certainty about the things that have been taught, right? And so why we've been walking through this slowly, orderly, methodically, right? Week 7, we just get, uh, gotten to the second chapter. We've got a long way to go. Right? And so the reason we're doing this is because the reality is our world is uncertain. There's so much chaos. Like even thinking about school, it's really uncertain. Thinking about your jobs, it's uncertain. Right? Now, I talked to many people this week. And the decisions you have to make occupationally for you, the people that work with you, for you, under you, around you, got a, there's just a real complication of the uncertainty that's just out there. And we all do not know where it's heading. Right? Uncertainty. Right? And so Luke then tells us he writes a whole biography so that we can have certainty. Don't you want certainty about the things you've been taught? And what he's helping us understand there is where we find certainty is not in some idea, not in some bank account, um, some job or relationship, or, you know, a full pantry or closet, right? That's not where our certainty can be found because that comfort, that security will one day fail you. We're feeling that angst of that already. He writes this because he knows where certainty is found. The things that we have been taught is that Jesus tells us he's the way, the truth, and the life. Right? So here's the idea. The way that you get certainty is you, you cling to truth and we gotta go, well, where do we find truth right now in this world that's just filled with chaos and lies? Well, luckily the Bible tells us that truth is not an idea or a belief. It's a person. His name is Jesus. So we've just been reading through this biography about Jesus' life. So if you don't know much about the scriptures, that's fine. Let me just catch you up. There's these two things that just kind of continue to happen throughout the scriptures, and here's what they are. There's promise, and then there's fulfillment. Got it? Promise and fulfillment, right? Really, really important. And so, um, 
if you're new to the Bible and you're kind of confused, why are there 66 books? And here's the thing, you know, you're talking about written over uh, 1,500 years, more than 30 different authors writing one story about God's heart to us. And so the simplest way to kind of uh, divide that up is you got the Old Testament, which gives us an understanding of humanity, how we're so broken, what's going on with us, why we blame each other, just all the things that kind of give us an, an inner, like, a, a, like that allows us to peer into the human psyche and make some observations about how we're a mess, right? We can't fix ourselves. We keep making promises that we can't, you know, that we can't fulfill and just all sorts of complications. So we get an understanding of uh, what's happening in our world and how it's happening with humans, and we get an understanding of why, right? In the very beginning of the Old Testament, there is this declaration that God initiated all this by, by his word. So crazy, right? And so God speaks all that into existence, and then he brings life and joy and peace, and there's perfect harmony in this garden where there is perfect shalom, peace, right? But then we see that that gets wrecked really, really quick, right? There's all sorts of messiness that happens where basically mankind, true story, right? This is not folklore, myth, or legend. That mankind actually goes, hey, we like our plan better than yours, God. We'll take it from here. We don't really need you. And they, 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 they walk away from God, right? And God, because he's gracious and loving, is not going to force himself upon everybody. He gives them the opportunity. He gives them the freedom to make that decision, and they wreck their lives. And then they go, oh no, what do we do? How do we fix this? We can't fix this. This is chaos. This is complication, right? And we see from Genesis 3, verse 15 on, is there's this promise that God said, don't worry. It seems that there's no way, but I will make a way. Don't worry. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bless you and your offspring, even though you don't deserve it, I'm going to make this promise and this covenant that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fulfill everything I promised. I'm going to fulfill it, right? And so from that point forward, Genesis 3, throughout the whole Testament, it is just littered with promise. So the whole Old Testament can just be defined as that. It's promise. And then the New Testament actually is where God, we see it in the Scriptures, fulfills all the promises of the Old Testament. So we see this fulfillment happen, right? So, Old Testament, a promise that he would make a way where there is no way. That he would do great things. That he would love us regardless. That he would restore and renew. That what the enemy meant for harm, he is going to use for good. The saving of many lives. And so the Old Testament is all about promise. Then the New Testament would be about fulfillment. Meaning, the fulfillment. Like, this is where God actually fulfills the promises he made throughout human history. And what's so crazy is all that fulfillment, all that fulfillment, all those promises, right, are kind of bottled up in human flesh in the form of Jesus. So Jesus is the fulfillment of these promises. And then Jesus' spirit, the Holy Spirit, invades our life, like empowers us, fills us with Jesus' spirit, God's Spirit, and then, 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 we get to participate in the fulfillment of the promises of the Old Testament. We get to participate in bringing the kingdom of heaven to earth. So, Old Testament, all about promise. New Testament, all about fulfillment. And so what we've been looking at is Luke kind of is going to walk us through methodically how and when and why Jesus fulfills all the promises. So if you've been with us the last six weeks, we've been in Luke chapter 1, and we haven't really got to the fulfillment yet, right? So we're still in promise form, 
So Luke chapter 1, uh, he introduced us to some interesting characters, right? This is a, a story, a true story. So we've learned about Elizabeth and Zechariah. Those are some pretty intri- in- intriguing people. And we learn about their son, John the Baptist. You have to go back and listen to the sermons. Have no time to cover it today. But what we know about John the Baptist is he's going to show up and be a front runner, a forerunner to declare people that the Lord's coming. He's going to say, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight paths for him. Remove every mountaintop. Fill in every valley. Make every crooked path straight. Why? So that all mankind, so that you and I can see God's salvation. So John literally means a gift from God. But it's the, the gift is that he is pointing to the greatest gift. In other words, what John is doing, and what he, you'll see him do, is he has shown up, and he is announcing that the promises are about to be fulfilled. He is having everybody pause, and what, what creates tension gets your attention, right? Really, really interesting in terms of how we live in this COVID complicated world. There's all sorts of tension, and so what's happening is all of a sudden we're pausing, going, where's God? Is he real? Is he loving? Could he do something? So John the Baptist invades this world, and he is going to announce that the promises are about to be fulfilled. And then finally, Luke chapter 2, we're here today. That fulfillment, that fulfillment, all the fulfillment, everything that changes everything, all of a sudden is going to begin to show up today. So we're going to see, finally, seven weeks in, the solution to all of our uncertainty, the solution to all of our waywardness and confusion and pain and sorrow and unrest, the solution for all that. And that, I know it sounds hyperbolic, but it's not. The fulfillment of all the things that we've longed for all that's going to be found in the person and work of Jesus. So today we're going to read Luke chapter 2. We're just going to cover seven verses. I want to introduce you to a lot of adjectives and it'll be and some geography and introduce you to new characters. A lot of fun. So we get at least three new characters that show up in the scriptures today. Real life people that Luke's going to write about. So here goes. Luke chapter 2 beginning in verse 1. Um, if you're not familiar, I've been reading from the English Standard Version. Really like that translation. This word for word really helps with the grammar, I think. So that's what, what, what I've been in and will probably continue to be in throughout this series. So here's where we are. Okay. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Okay, here's the thing. So we got Caesar Augustus. So got a new character. You see him? There's Caesar Augustus. So What's going to happen is I'm going to give you some history, political stuff, all sorts of things. But what I want to make sure is what we've been doing the last couple of weeks is I don't want you to get lost when this board, I'm telling you, it's going to be filled up with stuff. And hopefully it will stay, right? Um, but I don't want you to get lost in that. So let me, as I've done the last couple of weeks, just go ahead and give you the big idea. You can write it down. If you decide to tune out, that's all you need. Great. I get, not great, but, you know, do what you would like. And here's the big idea. You ready? Talk about Jesus. He is, he's not, and he wants us to be. He is, he's not, and he wants us to be. Okay, so you should be good with that. Oh, that solves everything, doesn't it? Nope, doesn't, but it will. So go ahead and write that down if you want to. He is, he's not, and he wants us to be. You got it? You know, we'll flesh that out through the rest of the, uh, the sermon. That was kind of sarcastic, but obviously that's not going to help you. You can't tune out. You've got to stay in. So what we see now is, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all, uh, w- all the world should be registered, right? So what we have here is the Caesar Augustus. His word, the word Augustus literally means the majestic or the highly revered. So you know anything about Caesar Augustus? Uh, maybe this will help. He is uh, the son of Julius Caesar, okay? You know that. You've uh, read about him in, you know, Shakespeare. E2 Brute. He, he dies. Really, really sad thing. All sorts of complications. But um, he kind of oversaw, ruled over the this massive 
Roman Empire, right? Multiple nations, multiple languages, multiple ethnicities. There is a great, mighty ruler who declares himself as a Lord, as a Savior, as a King, and as a God. So people worship this guy. Then, then he dies, and one of the things that happened is he adopted his uh, great-grand-uncle, I mean nephew, right? So, this, so he adopts him and kind of, you know, like a last will and testament, whatever those things are, right? He kind of decrees that this guy, this guy is going to be over the whole uh, Roman Empire. So he gets all the power and all the authority. So the first thing we're going to see here, right? And so Luke, in seven verses, is going to give us some really in-depth stuff. And the first thing that we see is not only is Luke, this guy we're studying, uh, he was a medical doctor turned investigative journalist hired by this guy named Theophilus to go and study to find certainty of whether or not Theophilus and all of us should believe this, this crazy story that God became a man and died for us. I mean, think about it. It sounds pretty ridiculous, right? And so what we see here is Luke's account is going to be historical. You got it? Historical. And what I mean by that is these are real people. I mean, all these people are real people. But even if you're not a Christian, you know these people, right? And so these are real people that in this, in the history of the world, they show up. So Luke is going to give us some understanding. He's going to go, in those days, hey, let's talk about history. Uh, a decree went out, like a mandate went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered, right? That's, that's a census. This is a census. So got some history there. And then it says this. This was... The first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. So here's what we got. We got this guy, Quirinius. Sorry, I couldn't get a nice little cute cartoon picture of him. He wasn't that important. But there he is as a stone head. Quirinius, he is the governor. And that, I don't know that it translates perfectly, uh, so don't, don't hold me to it. But uh, the way that you can kind of see this, this isn't like, okay, he was a governor of a, like a state, like Rhode Island. Ugh, who, who would want to be there, right? That's a joke. Ben's in here doing all this. He's from Rhode Island. That's why he talks funny. Uh, and so, um, so anyway, got, got this. He, here is the, the, the you know, emperor over the whole empire, and this guy is a governor, right? Now, the way that you probably could see this, it's not a, it's not like an apples for apples, apples kind of analogy, but this would be like uh, Caesar Augustus president. Quirinius would be a cabinet member, right? A cabinet member, right? So what you see is um, there's an agenda. They decide that they want to uh, do this. So this was the first registration, as you see in verse 2. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. This was when Quirinius was a governor of Syria. So in verse 2, Quirinius, governor of Syria. So we have these two people right there. We got Caesar Augustus, and we have... Quirinius, and the next thing you see here, it's really, really interesting. Luke brings us up to speed on some more stuff, and here's what we know, is that this is also political. It's just political. Politics involved. You got a leader, and times pretty terrible, but not as terrible as his adopted father, Julius Caesar. He was a little different that he didn't declare that people had to worship him as God. He just said, you have to worship my dead daddy as God, right? So you got uh, uh, Caesar Augustus, and you got Quirinius, and that's where we find ourselves. In those days, a decree goes out, and, and then this was the first registration. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. So president, cabinet member, that's where we are. We see it as political. And what you got to understand is there's a reason for the census. I want you to get this. In fact, there be two reasons. These guys would have been really interested in having a 
census, and this is where it gets really political because um, we are suspicious. I'm suspicious. All of us are suspicious of why people actually serve in politics. Is it to be of service to our nation and to our communities and to our towns, or is it so that it can benefit you, right? And, or b- benefit the, the, the politician. And so the reason you would have had a, a census is for two reasons, right? The first one is, hey, we need to know how much our taxes should be. We need to know all the people who should be sending money back to the Roman Empire. So the first part of this is, if we know all the people, we can keep up with them and make sure they give us more money. So the first reason for this political thing would have been uh, money. Now, the other thing is, um, they also need to know all the able men, right? Because if you're going to go conquer other nations, you need a, a, an army. You need, you know, kind of a large group, a mob to go conquer those nations. And we, if a nation or an empire were to come and try to overtake the Roman Empire, Caesar Augustus would need to know all the people he had to, that he could prepare to defend them, right? So this is all about... Um, power, fame, glory, comfort, security. And so that's where we find ourselves. Not only historical, these are real people, you know, and political. There's actually a political agenda in this. And this is what it says next. Verse 3 it says, and all went to be registered, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And we always see another one. Here's another adjective. This is genealogical. This had to do very specifically to the Jews. Um, their society was patriarchal. I didn't use that word because it had an H, not a C. And so I don't even want to finish the words with Cs. But in that, um, the way that it worked is only men could own land. And when they had to do a census, they had to go back as far as they could to where their great, 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 granddaddy or whatever it is to when they occupied a land, got the deed and established their place. Right? And so this is, this is where all the Jews would have to go back. And they were aware. This is kind of a common thing to know where their ancestors were from. This, so they would have to go back. The Jews have to travel back to wherever their great-great-great-great-grandfather was from and the land that he owned to make themselves known in that place. Now, this is complicated because there's not hotels. Right? There's not easy ways to travel. And so depending on how far you lived away, um, the most you'd probably travel in a day at that time is about 10 miles. Right? So depending on how far you live, this is a long journey so that these guys can know, know that you exist and know that you should ta- uh, they could tax you and know that maybe you would be available to defend their empire. Right? So uh, genealogical, they would have to have known all this stuff about where their great-great-grandfather is, and they would be going there. So in those days, historical, uh, these two guys established kind of this these rules so they can know about money and power, political, and then tell all these Jews they got to go to their, their hometown, right? Return, return home, genealogical, to make themselves known. So that's what we know so far. Three verses in, verse 4, it says this. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house of and lineage of David. In other words, um, in Samuel, the book for 2 Samuel, we kind of get this understanding of who uh, David is, and he, it says he grew up in Bethlehem, right? He tended sheep in Bethlehem. His family settled in Bethlehem, right? And ultimately, when people would come back, they had their family reunions where you get the matching shirts, you know, all that cute stuff. All that would have happened in Bethlehem. So Joseph, genealogically, from this place of 
you know, uh, uh, from this town of Bethlehem. And so now we introduce ourselves to a new character, and his name is Joseph, right? His name is Joseph. His name is Joseph. So we got Joseph, first time we've introduced him here. So you don't get a lot of uh, his backstory. Uh, there's an assumption, or we know that he's a carpenter. We know that they're poor because when him and his wife and baby Jesus come to make a sacrifice, they can't even offer a lamb or a goat. They have to offer this you know, dirty little bird, right? That's just how that works. So he's poor from a small town. We know he's from Nazareth. And so Joseph is about to travel. So the next thing you got to see here, this is really, really important. So when you see this about the line of David in Bethlehem, it's not just genealogical. It's also, you ready? Prophetical. Isn't that a fun word? Prophetical. Having to do with prophecy. Right? This is so crazy. So when Luke is laying this out, the Jews would understand this, when it says, from the town of Nazareth to Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. So it's not just genealogical. It's not just political. It's not just historical, but it's prophetical. Let me just point out a couple things. This is really, really important. Um, In Micah chapter 5, hundreds and hundreds of years earlier when Old Testament, we're talking about the promise, right? In Micah chapter 5, one of the prophets was telling us how the fulfillment's going to happen, right? Promise and fulfillment. And this is what this prophet announced. Speaking on behalf of God. But you, O Bethlehem, aha, there it is, Bethlehem, right? Um, Ephrathath, uh, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. You're a tiny little baby town, right? From you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, who's coming forth is from of old, watch this, from ancient, of ancient, from ancient days. That literally means from eternity past. That means like infinity past, right? And so in this thing, hundreds and hundreds of years earlier, there was a guy, a prophet, speaking on behalf of God to all the people going, hey, you've heard about the promise. Let me tell you how you'll know the fulfillment's going to happen. And it's going to be crazy, right? This little bitty baby town with dozens, if not maybe a hundred people living in it. Like this little bitty place, not respected, all those things. From that little place is going to uh, come a, a, a savior, a king, a lord, right? No, this is complicated because Joseph and Mary aren't from Bethlehem. So you can imagine as they find out that they're going to birth this lord and savior and God, they're going, wait, but the promise was that it would come from Bethlehem. So see this? These crazy, corrupt guys are orchestrating God's prophecy. They don't know, but they're orchestrating God's prophecy. And it says this next, to be registered, this is verse 5, with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. So now we see this. Not only do we have Joseph, but we have Mary heading to town. Got it? So this is what's really interesting here. Um, a lot of the scriptures, even from the very beginning of in Genesis and the fulfillment piece, are all about contrast, right? Light and day, you know, good, evil, light, darkness. You got all these different things. Well, it's pretty interesting. It's got a pretty deep and heavy contrast here. You see it? So there's, you know, all these different things here. And so you got these, this contrast going on between these two. You got Mary and Joseph, their rural, rural not, you know, urban. They're not rich. These guys are rich. They're not powerful. These guys are powerful, right? They're worshipers of God, not worshipers of man. You've you got this big contrast, but we're still in this 
prophetical thing. So what's really neat is Luke is going, hey, first let me tell you about Joseph, and then you're going to see that he's from the line of David, meaning what was promised, that promise in Micah is now about to be fulfilled. And then we see to be registered with Mary, his betrothed. They're not even married yet. They haven't consummated their marriage, all that kind of stuff. And what uh, Mary, and so we know from last week or week before and the week before that, that Mary was a virgin. So this is still prophetical. Let me remind you of what it says in Isaiah chapter 7. Therefore, the Lord will give you a sign. There's a promise. How will we know that it's going to be fulfilled, right? Therefore, the Lord will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call him Emmanuel, meaning God with us. So there's this prophecy 700 years or more before this shows up. Isaiah is going to go, how do you want to know that the promise is going to be fulfilled? Here's what God says. There's going to be a sign. And there's going to be a woman who's going to be a virgin who's going to have a baby. So Joseph from David's line, Mary, a virgin. And we're starting to see these promises kind of play out. Now, the other thing we've got to see here, and this is really important be really easy to miss, is that this is not only, right, um, prophetical. As we see what happens here, it tells us that these guys are, um, these guys are uh, going from Nazareth to Bethlehem. So this is also not just um, historical, political, genealogical, and prophetical. It's also geographical. Got it? So let me show you real quick how this works. I got some stuff for us here. Oh, here we go. We got, got this, Galilee, and then we have Judea. See this right here? Everybody with me? Can't hear you. Can you speak up? Yeah, yeah. Good, good. Just joking. That was a joke. Okay. So this is not only um, historical, political, genealogical, prophetical, and geographical. It's also geographical meaning. Get this. That's why I use this picture right here. You see it? This is Mary, and this is Joseph. She is really, really pregnant. In fact, it says, who was with child. That literally means she's really pregnant. They're going to travel. Let me show you this. From all the way up here in Nazareth, all the way down here to Bethlehem. That's a long trip. Again, I told you. No more than about 10 uh, miles a day. But she is really, really pregnant. So this is, a, this is complicated there that she's going to travel from here to here. But the way that she's going to travel, because they viewed, Jews viewed, these guys as evil and these guys viewed them as evil, right? You know, some of you are in this world where maybe it's your family members, maybe it's an old friend, whatever it is that you don't, um, you don't get along with, you don't want to see some sadness in there, right? And the way by which you commute to work, travel from place to place, has kind of been altered because of the worry that you wouldn't want to run into them. Like, multiply that by a million or a billion. That was the relationship between the Jews and the Samaritans, they were very frustrated. These guys were trying to honor God, and these guys go, hey, there's some fun to be had here. Let's, let's kind of honor God, but let's also chase after pleasure, right? And so the way by which people would travel from Nazareth to Bethlehem would be a lot quicker, 60, 70 miles this way, or 60 miles this way, or 100 miles around. Now, these guys are going to travel around. But not only is it geographical, oh, it's topographical. So this gets really complicated. It's around here, uh, there is... Uh, there's some uh, hill countries that they're going to have to go through to get to Bethlehem. And it's up and down the way you cross that. And, and then kind of along the Jordan River, there would have been kind of a flatter area next to the banks, right? So what's going to happen and what would have happened is they would have left Nazareth. They would have uh, kind of stayed 
in the area of Galilee. They would have tried to even avoid as much of Decapolis as possible, right? And they had gotten to the Jordan River, and they had stayed on the flat part of the Jordan River. They had come all the way down to, uh, all the way down the Dead Sea, and then would have come over. So there would have been uh, mountains to climb, valleys to go into. And so you got to hear this. He is leading his wife on a multi-day, probably a month's journey to get to this place because these two guys have declared that they must, right? And so these guys are evil and bad, and yet God is working together something really interesting here. And so they're going to go around, and they're going to travel 100 miles, multiple days, in very complicated terrain. So here's what I want you to see here. This isn't the biggest idea. Remember, the big idea is he is, he's not, and he wants us to be. Stay with me. I'll get you there in just a second. But I do want you to see this, right? They didn't plan this, right? This, this happened to them. It wasn't like they were steering this and go, you know what? I want to travel 100 miles. You know, could you imagine being really, really pregnant and riding on a donkey? Some of these areas down here in Judea, there'd have been a Judean desert. And depending on what time of the year they traveled and all those kind of things. It would have gotten down into the 30s. So, but then hot during the day, right? Could you imagine that? Like they, this wasn't their plan. Or could you imagine being in their situation when Joseph has finally decided that he's going to just still stay Mary, or Mary, Mary, right? That he's still going to support her. You know, we, we get some understanding in some of the other gospels, that, and, and Luke would have been aware of this, that he was considering premeditatively just divorcing her in quiet. No, really important to Luke, who wants us to have certainty, writes the most exhaustive book of the, the, of the you know, the most exhaustive biography about Jesus' life, right? Um, he doesn't even go into those details as if they're not kind of the main thing. But what you've got to see here is this guy has, is still devoted to his wife. He's trying to honor God, right? God, I'm going to honor you in this. Mary has come back three months pregnant, and her circumstance hadn't changed, but she comes back, and they're working through this and trying to love God, and they're trying to figure that out. And then, lo and behold, as they finally get to the point where they felt like they're in a, in a good path, they find out that now, now they're going to have to travel while really, really pregnant, over 100 miles. They don't have money. They'll be tired. I mean, could you imagine riding on a donkey? A big old belly. So you got you to see this as more than, oh, to be registered with Mary Betrothed, and okay, that's great, great. No, this, guys, this is hard. And God didn't cause it. We don't think, right? This was Caesar Augustus's plan. God didn't cause it, right? God didn't cause it to happen, but he certainly allowed it. Right? And so, for many of us, many of us, you've kind of worked through this belief and finally got to the conclusion that Jesus is actually Lord and you want to follow him. So you've started following him. You've gotten in on that lane and started to follow him. And you, then things have gotten harder, right? This whole COVID thing. And you're going, God, I'm trying so hard to trust you. But it, it's hard. You've got to climb mountains and valleys and be cold and hot and have your reputation destroyed. You get all that? Like, God was bending and shaping all that for his, our good and his glory. But he was allowing it. So I don't, I don't know where you're at in the journey. I don't know what's going on with your life. But this idea that when things are going good, that's because God is uh, being gracious to you. Yep, it could be true. And in things that, when things are going bad, it must be that God is mad or you messed up. These guys have done nothing wrong. And yet, they are going to walk through this absurdly complicated, broken, time. Why? 
Because God was orchestrating a promise and bringing it to fulfillment with these guys. And this is what's going on. And so I just want you to know this. This is what's so nuanced about the scriptures and so beautiful about who God is. You see this, like this horrible human, this guy who worshiped himself, is making demands and declarations of these people. This guy doesn't have to travel, right? He doesn't have to do anything. This guy with a ton of power is leveraging his power to get more power, and those that are powerless are giving up more of their time and more of their energy and making more sacrifices. And an, a, this is a broken, broken political world, right? It seems like there is no way that God would have to be absent in this, because how dare, if these things happen, if there's evil in the world, why in the world would God allow that, right? If there's evil in the world, and here's the thing you got to see, you got to see it, right? That even in the middle of all those things, God was using it to bring about prophecy, to bring fulfillment. God was using it to grow their faith. These, these guys, these, this man and woman, this husband and wife are going to raise Jesus, who is God, right? And so God is bending and shaping all those things, the hills and the valleys, the literal hills and valleys. God is with them. He is with them, right? So as we look at COVID or look at uh, complications in our church or in our world or in your marriage, God is still with you, right? This is so important. There are so many stories in the scriptures where it just seems like, man, it's so hard. You can go read through, you know, a good portion of Genesis where there's a story of Joseph who continues to try to honor God and he continues to have his reputation shot down. He gets thrown in jail. He gets persecuted. He gets all sorts of stuff. He becomes a slave. And we're talking about a, like a decade plus, maybe 15, 20 years of just mess for Joseph's life. And then finally, there's this promise, and then there's this fulfillment. And Joseph knew at one point God was showing him that he would be a person who would take care of a lot of people, right? Like he would feed them. He would clothe them. He would serve them, right? He, he understood the promise, but it took a long time for the fulfillment to happen. They understood a promise, but they are in the middle of this dry, deserted land. And I just need you to hear this. There is still a fulfillment for you. You got to keep walking in this, right? You cannot shrink back. You got to lean forward. It'd been really easy to go, no, we can't do this. We can't go. We can't go. Let's just hide. Let's just, uh, so that Caesar Augustus doesn't even know we're, we, we're alive, right? Let's just not do this. It's too much work. You're pregnant. No, no, no. They continued to walk forth and do the next right thing, step after step, hill after hill, mountain after mountain, valley after valley, night after night. They just kept walking forward. Why? Why? Because they believed that God made a promise and he would fulfill it. And you get to verse 6, and this is what it says. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. So they make the journey. They get to a place. And the time comes. Time comes. For finally, the fulfillment of all the prophecies to happen in, in a moment. This child shows up into the world. Shows up. Really, really interesting. So not only is it historical, political, genealogical, prophetical, geographical, topographical, really, really important here. It's also biographical. Biographical. Got it? All of a sudden, we're going to learn about this man who was God, who was also a man who came and lived in our world, lived the life we should have lived, died the death we should have had, died because, because, because there is a promise 
and there's a fulfillment and the greatest fulfillment that Jesus promises is he wants you to be with him forever and all of a sudden all of a sudden it takes us seven weeks to see finally this Emmanuel the one that was promised in Isaiah chapter 7 seven eight hundred years earlier all of a sudden there's this place and here we go it's biographical biographical but it's more than biographical watch what it says next verse 7 and she Mary gave birth to her first son her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the end. Real quick, just point out the word end gets a little confusing. It just means, I guess, bedroom, maybe. And so it just means a place to rest. So this idea that it was some kind of hotel, probably not the case. The real reality is they probably got to town finally. And they may have known a relative of a relative. I mean, Joseph's from Bethlehem, and they would have reached out and said, hey, can we stay with you? But because the census is happening, a lot of, lot of other people are also there, right? And so they're going, hey, we don't have any extra bedrooms, but, you know, we do have a place. We do have a place. And then, like, kind of a, a lot of times they, if these are built on, like, hillsides. Remember I told you, topographical. There would have been, like, almost like a cave underneath it. And there would have been a place that they would have uh, allowed the animals to stay when it was cold. But it would have been kind of like a garage is how you have to see it. And so they'd probably go, hey, this is probably the best spot for you. It's really, really beautiful. And God's promise and fulfillment and God seeing and working and bending and shaping all things for our good. There is a place in, in, the, in the Middle East now, right, where they believe the church of the nativity year after year after year after year. It's just been protected and people worship there. And You know, a, a, a long while back, uh, a bunch of pagans came through there and said, hey, uh, let's destroy all the, all the church temples. But because of some of the signs that were on it, they didn't realize that they were all pointing to Jesus, right? And Because they had the wise men out there. And they're like, oh, this must be another pagan temple. And they left it alone like God even protected there. And in this place, you can visit now. You can go all the way down and there's like a basement, 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 into like a cave, right? Like a setting in the middle of this topography where we believe that it's a possible best likelihood of any other likelihood that that could have been where Jesus entered this world. Biographical. Jesus was a man. He was a man, but not just biographical. Really, really important here. Also theological. Also theological. Right? Told you this is promise and fulfillment, and there's a lot that's happening here. And we'll work through it for a while, but I just want to offer you some, by theological, I mean the study of God. And because God became man, Jesus study of Jesus. And so, a couple of things that we just kind of have to wrestle through as we think about this uh, would be these things, right? Did, did Jesus did Jesus evolve into God? Like, was he a man and, you know, he, you know, kind of like kind of grew in his own way and all of a sudden became so godly that he, people declared he's God. Did he evolve into God? Is that one of the things that we see here? Well, no, he's here. Really good person. The reality is he's not a good person if he's not God because he made some really crazy claims because he said he was God. Like he would have been absurdly offensive if what he said wasn't true. Did, did he evolve from God? No, 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 no. He was always God. In fact, that's what I love about what it says in that prophecy in Micah because it says, you know, I told you um, about that from from ancient days. He was always God. So this isn't he was a man who added some divinity. This was full divinity that added to man, right? And so, yep, always, always God. This was always the plan. You've got to hear this. The minute that Adam and Eve bit from the, the fruit on the tree, 
Jesus was the plan. He was always the plan. From the beginning, from the very beginning, God was fully aware that we would not be able to save ourselves, fix ourselves, and there was always going to be a promise. In fact, we find it in Genesis chapter 3 that through a woman's offspring was going to come this Savior, and he was going to step onto this planet so we could trust him and know him and believe in him. So he was always God. Didn't involve into God. Here's another one is, um, well, did Jesus start at birth? Like, did, is that like where his life began? No, no, again, same thing as the, from ancient days. Uh, this, this was God. This is so crazy. You got to hear this because to me, I mean, I think the resurrection is beautiful, incredible miracle that Jesus comes back to life and then offers that to us. But the idea that God got it put on a body is so profoundly crazy and confusing that the God of the universe, remember, we got Caesar Augustus, we got all these guys who declared that you would worship them and that your goal in life was to give him power and authority and celebrate him and lift him up and, you know, raise him up, right? The idea that God himself, who is from ancient days, eternity past, put on human flesh, not just human flesh, in the form of a baby as the weakest, most vulnerable person, the weakest, most vulnerable person in the world in the world at that time, right? The weakest, most vulnerable. The fact that God did that, so, so important, right? And that's why at some point you even see John chapter 1, verse 1, another biography about Jesus' life. It says, in the beginning was the Word, that's Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and He was there in the beginning. And then he tells us in John chapter 1, verse 14, and the Word became flesh and made His dwelling up among us, meaning he was always God. He always was. Jesus did not start 2,000 years ago. What he did is he, he put himself in, and he wrapped himself in humility and entered this world very vulnerably. That would be another one. Another, another thing that kind of people wonder is, well, did we steal this from pagans? Right? Like, it's a really cute story, but is it stolen from pagans? Because, you know, there's lots of different, you know, worldviews where, you know, these Greek gods have babies, and they become gods, and they lead away, and no, 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 that's not at all. They're literally, so we look at this, you look at uh, what Isaiah said 700 years earlier. That's kind of a, you know, a, a precursor for a lot of the, 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 the Greek and mythological and pagan writings. If you can also go back all the way to Genesis chapter 3, which is ancient. We have, yeah, you know, explanation and understanding and, you know, data and to, to show the oldness of, of the book of Genesis written by Moses, right? So we have this idea that this thing kind of predates any of these other crazy stories. So as we think about all these crazy stories, they kind of, uh, they, they pick up and piggyback on the greatest story that God became man. Why I always tell you that. So I, I love superhero movies, and yet I think they're all the same. And why I think you're drawn to them is because this is the story, like, we understand that we're broken and can't fix ourselves. We long for something greater than us, right? If we can't fix it, maybe someone with greater powers who understands us can step in and save the day. And usually that person is tormented and has some complications, but they come in, they save the day, and they set the world right. And you go, why are we so drawn to that story? And so for those of you like, you know, Marvel movies, you're drawn to that more, uh, story of the guy who never shows up early, right? Or rarely shows up early, but never shows up late. No, for those of you who don't like, you know, superhero movies or action movies, you like the romantic comedies, just replace, uh, you know, superhero power with this ethereal, um, mystical love, right? It's love that conquers all things. You know, love ends at the end of the day. All those kind of things, you know, things, get, uh, things are good. They get better when people fall in love. Then there's some tragic sin, and then they get bad, and then they come back together, and it's this, this love that's kind of drawing all the, that together. Where do those things all come from? Well, they come from a super powerful, supernatural, beyond our understanding, 
God who steps on this earth with this supernatural love, right? So those things invade the world. And so this isn't a story that comes from the pagans that, you know, Christians have just kind of uh, captured. I would argue the opposite is true. It's in our human psyche. It's in our soul. It's what we long for. So it makes sense that if that's the case, then, um, then these other stories have gravitated to the story of Jesus. So that's one. And, and another one that we've got to wrestle through is this. Did he stop being God? Did he stop being God when he became a Christian? Like, I'm sorry, when he stepped on this planet, did he stop being God? Like, did he, like, his godness cease? Some people go, well, he had faith in the real God, but he's not still God. And really important that you understand this. The reason he gets murdered is because he says he's God. So Jesus' claims are that he is God. Like, he is God. And so people don't like that. He forgave sins. Like, could you imagine? Oh, yeah, I forgive you of your sins. You're, you're made right with God. Like, I don't have that power. So the fact that he did that enraged people. He literally gets murdered for his belief that he was God, so he did not stop being God. And one of the other ones that people kind of wrestle through in this, does it really matter if she is a virgin? I mean, does it really matter? Is this something we hold tight-fisted, or can we hold it open hands? And I would argue wholeheartedly, yes, it matters. It matters, and she was a virgin. Uh, a couple reasons that um, it has to matter is the first one is, uh, if she's not a virgin, the Bible's a lie, and we're done. Maybe we're done. We're a social club. Because every single week we open this up and talk about it for an hour. We're just done. So if this isn't true, then the Bible's a lie. Good news it's not a lie. And good news is you got this promise of the Old Testament fulfilled in the New Testament. Uh, second thing is Mary's a liar, right? Because she said she was a virgin. Could you imagine if that's not true? Poor Joseph is so, like, he, is, he has been blindsided by this girl who's acted inappropriately and disrespected him, right? So first, yeah, the Bible would be untrue. Second one is Mary would be a liar. And the third one is none of these prophecies of the Old Testament would be fulfilled. None of them would be fulfilled. We'd still be waiting. Is there going to be a Messiah? When's the Messiah going to come? How is that going to work? If this isn't, if, if this virgin isn't, doesn't birth a child, then the Bible's a liar. The, uh, Mary's a liar. And we're still stuck because no Savior or King has been born of a virgin. No prophecy would have happened. So here's kind of the things that you got to see about this. Really, really important, and we'll work through this uh, for months. we got to see about this theologically. What we're talking about Jesus is three things. He was a man. In other words, he was like us. He's like us. This is so important because Caesar Augustus wasn't like us, wasn't like Mary and Joseph. He could not understand their pain or sorrow. He'd never walked in their shoes. He's never been persecuted. His reputation has never been damaged. He'd never been beaten. He'd never gone hungry. He'd never been homeless. He'd never been cold. He'd never been in pain, right? All these different things. It's all the other gods and all the worldviews, all of them, none of them have experienced what we experience, right? It is an arrogant thing for this God to just sit up there and say, suck it up, buttercup, right? No, no, that's not what Jesus said. He literally stepped onto this planet to, to, to live the life we should have lived and show us how much he loved us, loves us, right? So he was like us, right? He says, we have a great high priest, an interceder who understands our pain and sorrow. He is not just telling you to suck it up. When Lazarus dies, even though he knows he's going to bring you back to life, the first thing he does with the sisters is he weeps, meaning he understands the pain and death of sorrow, right? He understands it. He gets that wholeheartedly. So this is really, really important. He's not, I mean, he, he's, he's like us. He's like us. And yet, he's not like us. And this is really important too, right? Because your friends can have a pity party with you. 
They can tell you about the times they had the same experience, how they were disrespected, how someone betrayed them, how they were hungry, how they lost their job. They can tell you about those things, and how they can tell you about how they felt really far from God, all those kind of things, right? Even Jesus, he even says to his father, why have you forsaken me, right? Like he was, he's even felt that. He's felt the same thing that Mary and Joseph felt as they're traveling down the Jordan River going, what is this God? What are you up to? And God's going, no, oh, I got this. I'm bending and shaping it, right? So, so your, your friends can have those experiences, but guess what? Your friends can't fix you. They can't save you. They can't even offer you the forgiveness you really need, which is right standing with God. So he's like us. But here's what's really important. He's also not like us. You get it? Like, he's like us in that he understands our experiences and has deep empathy and compassion because he's experienced what we've experienced. And yet he's not like us, meaning he can actually do something about it. Right? He can do something about it. He actually has the power and the authority. He rules and he reigns. All these different emperors were talking about how they were the king of kings and lord of lords, and then Jesus stands above all that as the true king of kings and lord of lords. So not only can he understand what we're going through and have compassion towards what we're going through, weep with us as we're weeping, he actually can say, but there'll be a day where there'll be no more tears and no more pain and no more sorrow. In other words, he can wipe away the tear because he's the one who can make all things new and whole. And so what Jesus did is he said, all the promises that God would make a way where there's no way, he becomes the fulfillment of those promises. He experiences what we experience. He lives the life we should have lived, died to death, we should have died and then came back to life and did something about it and vied us into this resurrected life. So he is, he's not, and he wants us to be. And here's the most beautiful part about this. Not only did Jesus go experience what we experienced, step on this planet, died to death to show that he was God, came back to life, but then, 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 this was so beautiful. He wants us to be like him. So he's like us and he's not like us. But he wants us to be like him. He's, he's like us. He understands it. But oh, he's not like us. He is perfect and righteous and good, right? But he wants us to be like him. He is. He's not. But he wants us to be. And that's the beauty of this is while we are not like God, he is inviting us into that journey, right? He's inviting us. He's modeled life. And he's going to show us for the next three and a half years, right? Walking through the scripture. I'm talking about his life in the, the book of Luke, right? Where he's going to show us how to live. He's not like us, but he is like us, but he wants us to be like him. And so how do we do that? And that leads me to the final adjective of the day. Doxological, right? Now literally, you know, you think about the doxology, it just means a song of praise, and it literally means adjective describe the way that we praise God. And here's the reality. We become. We can argue about it. We can spend lots of time on it. We can talk about it in overtime. We become what we worship. You become what you worship. You worship money, you'll become a greedy man or woman. You worship comfort or security, you will have stockpiled of things in your home, right? You worship uh, sex, you will become someone who's so consumed by that, that when you close your eyes at night, all that's happening in your eyes are all the things that you have seen on your computer screen, right? You can't even get away from them, right? If you worship your identity, you're so consumed by the way you look in a mirror, the things that people are saying about you. If you worship success, you're caught up in your resume, right? That's, you, you become what you worship. So he's like us. He's not like us, but he wants us to be. And so how do we become like Jesus? You worship the thing 
the one you want to be like. Right? And so I love what it says in Romans chapter 1. It says this. This is Paul talking about this. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. God is so gracious. To present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Why? This is your, which is your spiritual worship. You want to know how we do this? We become like God. We worship God. We put all of our attention and focus on him. Even when things aren't good. As Mary and Joseph are making this journey, they're reminding themselves, they've got to be. God is in this. He has made a promise, and he's never not kept his promise. Right? They're, they're worshiping him. You want to become like Jesus. He's, he is like us. Right? He's experiencing it. He's not like us, but he's God. He can do something about it. But he wants us to be like him. And how do you do that? So we worship him. It's to acknowledge that he's the God and Savior of the world. Right? That he is King of kings and Lord of lords, and he is bending and shaping all this. And every sad thing will become untrue, right? Because he's made a promise, and he will fulfill it. And he is telling us that one day there'll be no more tears, no more pain, and no more sorrow. One day we'll get to Bethlehem, and we'll, we'll, we'll see the birth of Jesus in our life. But until then, as we make this journey in geography and topography, day after day, we have to remind ourselves that he is king and Lord, and he loves us, and he's already proven that. Listen, if God does nothing else for you, God does, and he will. If God doesn't bless you ever again, what he did for you 2,000 years ago, in the middle of Judea, on a Roman cross, saying, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing, and he pays the price and dies to death. The Bible tells us the wages of our sin is that. It's death. Meaning our spirit is disconnected from the life source. But the gift of God is through Jesus. So we have a reason to worship. So he's like us. He's experienced it. He understands the pain and sorrow. And he knows that our world is hard. He's lived it. And he has deep compassion. In fact, he weeps over it. And yet, he's not like us. He's ruling and he's reigning. And he will make all things new at some point. That promise will be fulfilled. And he wants us to be like him. How do we do that? We worship. So what's going to happen now is the band's going to come up and we're going to sing a song. And here's what the song says. Christ is enough. Christ is enough. If you're walking through the mountaintops, on the mountaintops, walking in the valleys, if you're freezing or you're burning up, Christ is still enough for us. So, could we declare that goodness? Declare that goodness now. And for those of us who believe this, would this be, would you lead your families in this by declaring that Christ is enough? And maybe for some of you, for the very first time, you want to go, I, I believe that. So let these be the words that you claim to God, right? It says, the Bible says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord is saved. Let's use these words in the song in worship that declare that and receive his salvation. So would you join me now as we sing together?
joining us today. There's a couple things before you close out that I want to want to share with you. One, if you got some stuff going in your life, we understand our world is really, really hard. And while Jesus understands it, he has called us to love each other and walk with each other. So get some prayer requests. Would you let us know? You can, you can fill out the connect card. You can actually 
uh, text us. You can text the word prayer to our church phone number, 610-869-2140, and it'll give you some prompts that we can be praying for you this week. Got some questions about the sermon. You can actually text overtime, O-V-E-R-T-I-M, that word to our church phone number, 610-869-2140. Or if you just want someone to reach out to you, you can just text us anytime from that number, 610-869-2140, or in the caption. There's lots of different options that you can respond to. One thing before, one last thing. Um, we're in the middle of trying to use our church building to serve our community in the middle of this pandemic, and we understand there's a lot of complications as it relates to how people are going to school uh, this year, particularly for families that have uh, dual incomes, multiple people working, trying to sort through all that. And so we have actually created something called the CLC Learning Hub. It's a way by which we can serve community, our community and our church family by providing supervision, support, tutoring, coaching during the day. It's $150 a week per student, but $100 for each additional sibling. But we need to know if you uh, if that's something you need or your friends need soon because we're building the staff around the enrollment. And so by Wednesday, we need to know what that enrollment's going to be. So go to clcfamily.church forward slash hub, H-U-B, and let us know of your interest. Read about that. Send it to your friends. We are looking to kind of close up the enrollment on Wednesday to make some decisions. Love you guys. Can't wait to see you in person. Stay tuned with us as we talk about that over the next few weeks. Uh, see you soon.